HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The following program is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, producing products that encourage you to eat wisely. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at Heritage Radio Network. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this weekly journey through culinary history. And lately, happily so, we're hearing more and more stories about the hidden faces, the hidden names behind so much of America's history. And today, our topic is another hidden story, and those are the stories of the hidden people behind the kitchen doors, specifically in the White House. Indeed, black chefs in the White House. Very interesting. And my guest is Adrian Miller, who has written a book called The President's Kitchen Cabinet, the story of the African-Americans who have fed our first families from the Washingtons to the Obamas, published by University of North Carolina Press. In this book, um, and we'll get into more of that when we start talking to to Adrian Miller, it's, it's really uncovering not only the stories of who was there, but trying to find out, indeed, who was there? Because mm-hmm. the records are very sparse, as, mm-hmm. as my guest is shaking his head. Adrian Miller is, a, as he says, a recovering attorney. Well, we're going to get into that one, too. All right. <laughs> a food writer, attorney, and certified barbecue judge. I love that one. Who lives in Denver, Colorado. He's the executive director of Colorado Council of Churches, the first African-American and first layperson to hold that position. He previously served as a special assistant to President Bill Clinton and a senior policy analyst for the Colorado Governor Bill Ritter Jr. Uh, So you're no no, uh, newcomer to the White House in politics, right? right? right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, you've been a board member of the Southern Foodways Alliance, and your first book, Soul Food, The Surprising Story of an American Cuisine, One Plate at a Time, won a James Beard Foundation Award for Scholarship and Reference in 2014. And I'm, I'm really happy to have you here to talk about this because, as I said, it's just, it's a kind of a, a, 
topic of the, I can't say the year, because it's yeah. been going on for several years, but I right. think it's it's a very important topic, something we all need to hear. Mm-hmm. How, what, you know, how did you, not how did you get into it, but how did you do it? How did you find out? Yeah. So first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, You're more than here. welcome. Uh, so while I was researching the book on the history of soul food, I read about 3,000 interviews and oral histories of formerly enslaved people reminiscing on their childhood and their early adult life. I read thousands of newspaper articles and magazine articles because there are companies that are digitizing yes. these sources and the word searchable, yes. um, interviews and other things. And so, and then I went to presidential libraries. And so it was through that that I found about 150 African-Americans who have been in the presidential kitchen from George Washington to the current administration. Well, interesting, because I would imagine a lot of them didn't have much information about them, not even probably last name. Some of them would be just by one name only right. in the early days because they were slaves. Right. right? So it took a lot of cross um, inf- you know, research and just trying to connect sources, because often a newspaper might would say colored cook or just hmm. a head cook. They wouldn't even bother to mention their name, or they might give a first name or a last name. And so it took a lot to just kind of piece that together. So in my book, I have a chart where I identify people where I could get the full name. So there are a lot of administrations where I just couldn't get that. But yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of lot of folks out there waiting to be identified. And the cool thing that's happening is since the book has come out, I have uh, the um, relatives of some of these cooks coming forward. Oh, yeah. time for another book. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah, let that happen. Yeah, I love the chart where you identify them with the with the you know the presidential term that they were serving Correct. under. And of course, I would imagine some of them, too, stayed on for a long time, just in the background, cooking for whomever, right? Well, it depends, because most of the uh, White House cooks have been accidental in the sense that they were either the enslaved cook or the private cook of someone who became president. So usually after the presidential term ended, they went back with that president, you know, that former president into private to life. House. Yeah, yeah. To their house, right. But, but you do have a free uh, a few people who stay on administration after administration. One woman I love to write about, just not a lot of information about her, is a woman named Esserline Dewberry who ends up cooking from Truman all the way to Reagan. Wow. And she's in several White House pictures, but she was never previously identified until my research. Mm. Now I'm working with the White House Historical Association to give name to some of the cooks in these pictures. Well, you know, it's it's interesting because the chefs, chefs period, outside of, I mean, in America, were never the headliners until probably about 20 years ago, 25 years ago. It was always the restaurateur was a headliner. So it's not totally unusual that we don't know who was cooking right, right. however you know in a white house you you know you should there should be record of that right, right? and the interesting thing is um, it's really more of a faded history because in the time contemporary to when, when these cooks were doing their thing some of them were written about in newspapers and so they were celebrated in their time but just as time passes we just forget about people so yeah. this is the first book that really brings a collective biography to that amazing group of people um, what I know there are so many people I would want to talk about because there are, the the stories are fascinating. Uh-huh. Um, they go outside the kitchen too, but yeah. <laughs> some of the stories. Um, but as far as um, I guess some of the talk about, we know a lot, not a lot, but we know names um, of some of the earliest identified cooks, and certainly with George Washington, there was Hercules. Mm-hmm. Um, Talk about a few that come to mind that you feel were, were really had interesting stories that were, I mean, they all have interesting stories, but that that were probably better known than others. 
Um, the, the better known ones or the lesser known? Oh, both, both, oh okay. Both. So no. one woman I love to talk about is a woman named Laura Dolly Johnson. Uh-huh. I love and her she, too. <laughs> yeah, she was the cook for Benjamin Harrison. And she was a reluctant White House cook because uh, she was basically cooking for a guy named John Mason Brown in Lexington, Kentucky. A young Theodore Roosevelt comes over for dinner. He's so impressed that when Benjamin Harrison gets elected, he recommends Dolly Johnson to be the cook. But she wanted to retire from private cooking and open a catering business. So they twist her arm. She ends up going to the White House. There was one slight problem. There was a uh, white French woman named Madame Pelunard who was already in that position. And she was not feeling all these headlines announcing Dolly Johnson's hire. So this very French cook has two American responses. One, she goes to the press and starts bad-mouthing the eating habits of the Harrisons. Chief (laughs) among their sins was that they ate a lot of pie especially for breakfast. And then she files a lawsuit. So she's the first example of a, of a White House employee suing a sitting president. Oh. But it all gets worked out and Dolly Johnson gets to work in the kitchen. Yeah. And that's interesting. So that was Benjamin, that was in Benjamin Harrison's term, right? right. Yeah, 1891. 1891 yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And she did, in fact, go on to open a catering business, did she not? She did. And yeah. so she's one of the few examples where we have of an African-American leaving the White House kitchen and actually trading on their notoriety uh, to start their business. Because you, you see that for, for, uh, as an example with several white cooks, but she's the first African-American we know of. Yeah, well, obviously, you know, those who were bound in slavery, you know, couldn't do that. They couldn't even leave, such, now, as, yeah. such as Hercules I mentioned with George Washington. Yeah. I mean, he could not leave. Right. right. And so because he couldn't leave, uh, he eventually finds out a way to leave. And he's one of the great examples of a person who escapes. And Jefferson was, or Jefferson, Washington, Washington. was very vindictive person. So... Hercules disappears necessarily because um, if you know the example of Oni Judge, who was a personal servant to Martha Washington, who escaped in Philadelphia a few years before Hercules did, you know the all of the antics that Washington went to to try to retrieve her, including trying to trick her and other things. So, well, you can share you can share yeah. a little bit of that with the listeners because yeah. I'm sure that they don't know a lot of that. Yeah. So Oni Judge, she makes it all the way to New Hampshire, and um, Washington was just furious that this happened. So he actually dispatches people to go to New Hampshire under the guise of you know being friendly people or whatever in order to trick Oni to coming back, but she was too smart for it. Hmm. So she never fell for it. So um, Hercules had a lot of liberties. He was allowed to kind of walk about town, um, dress up in a blue suit and a gold cane, go to the opera. Quite a dandy, I read. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And he got to sell leftovers out of the kitchen. I mean, this brother's cooking was so good. He made $2,000 a year in the 1790s selling leftovers. But his son, Richmond, who was an assistant cook in the presidential kitchen, gets caught with a lot of money. And Washington immediately suspects that this was going to finance an escape attempt. So rather than sending Hercules and Richmond back to Mount Vernon's kitchen as punishment, quote unquote, he sends them to the fields. So this renowned chef is now in the fields doing hard labor. And so on Washington's 65th birthday, while everyone's distracted, he actually successfully escapes. We don't know where exactly. He may have gone to Philadelphia initially, but there's a speculation that he may have gone to Europe because there's a painting of him, believed to be him, sitting in a museum in Madrid, Spain. And the painting is called A, a Cook for George Washington, and it's painted by Gilbert Stewart, the same hmm. guy who did the iconic portrait of Washington. Hmm. And um, if you look at the clothing in that painting, it's what a European chef would have worn as a professional attire during that time, not an American chef. All right. But he disappears. Um, well, of course, we know um, a lot about Jefferson's chef, Hemings, James mm-hmm. Hemings. Mm-hmm. And he actually he went to Europe right. with Jefferson, however, yes. for training. Um, but Hercules supposedly knew a lot of. Um, well, they were uh, they were trained in French 
cuisine. Right, because that to was cook. the. I mean, that was the that was the except right. Right, that was the cuisine of the time. So fine when, dining. Yes. Yeah. So when Hercules learns how to cook, he initially was a boat ferryman when he's purchased um, by the Washingtons. He was a teenager. And for whatever reason, they transfer him to the kitchen. So he actually apprentices under a, an enslaved cook named Old Doll. So she's the one who teaches um, Hercules how to cook. So I'm not sure how much um, actual French training he got, but I'm, I'm sure that uh, with Samuel Francis running the kitchen and other things, he got well-schooled in fine dining. But James Hemings, who never becomes a presidential cook because he drinks himself to death before Jefferson becomes president, he's actually, you know, trained for three years at an exorbitant cost hmm. uh, to cook very fine dining, including things like mac and cheese. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, which, funny how that went from, you know, from fine, high, high quality dining to comfort food, right? Yeah. Wait, you don't think <laughs> yeah. the blue box is fine dining? Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> no, but you can, but certainly versions of it can be, right. indeed. Um, and the food. So that's an interesting thing because the, the food... For, of course, we hear about the banquets, the state dinners and, and things. And those, of course, is where they're going to pull out all the stops and, and have them cook this refined cuisine, whether it's French or just, you know, a high quality cuisine. But often these cooks had to also, they had to cook, they'd be very versatile. They had to cook what the presidents liked. Right. right? So the pattern in the um, 19th century was typically that the African-American cooks, the private cooks did the family meals. But when it came time for the state dinners and the, the big parties, they would actually hire a French cook to cater. So they would hire someone outside hmm. the White House. Hmm. Then when we get to the 20th century, that's the time when you see White House cooks doing everything. And part of that was as a cost-saving move. Uh, and then eventually you get to the current era where you have the White House cooks doing everything. But sometimes, and the Obamas did this more than others, they have a guest chef come in and do the state dinners. And there's mixed reactions about that because a state dinner for a White House cook, that's your time to really shine. That's when you get to show off. Right, right. right. So to cede that to someone else can, you know, ruffle a little feather, yeah, a few feathers. Yeah. I guess, you know. Of course, you know, we're, we're talking about a period of a lot of time. I mean, cooking in Philadelphia <laughs> when the White House was there and the Capitol was there too. Then going to um, Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, and the um, the working conditions were not exactly prime. No. So uh, if you've ever spent any time in D.C., um, the White House was not air conditioned until the Truman administration. After all of the big renovations, so it was a part time residence. So people would stay there until maybe late May, early June, and then they would just get Escape. the heck yeah. Right. But um, for whatever reason, uh, Jefferson in particular had two enslaved women who were his, uh, his assistant cooks while he was in the White House. He had, he had a French guy named Honoraire Julien as the main chef. But uh, these two women, Edith uh, Fawcett and Frances Hearn, he forced them to stay year round and um, separated from their families. There's accounts of their husbands escaping Monticello to try to visit them. And Jefferson would intercept them before they got to D.C. and send them back. Hmm. They gave birth to kids in the basement. Um, and there were reports in the 19th century of White House workers getting tropical diseases. Wow. Because D.C. is a reclaimed swamp area. Yeah, the foggy bottom. Right. Uh-huh. And periodically the White House basement would flood where the kitchen is. And so by the time you get to Benjamin Harrison's time and Caroline Harrison, the floods had rotted the floor so much that there were actually a lot of vermin there. And Caroline Harrison wanted to actually relocate the White House to another part of D.C., Hmm. But, you know, citizens were not having that. Yeah. Well, I don't think there was a window in the, in the original kitchen either, was there? In the original kitchen, there were because um, you could actually look in if you were coming into the White House. Um, in the original location, uh-huh. you could actually look in and see what was being made. <clears throat> and then um, Mary Todd Lincoln wanted the 
kitchen moved to its current location in the northwest corner of the basement because she wanted more light. Uh-huh. Yeah. Good. Well, I, I do. I In fact, I posted the picture of Dolly Johnson in the White House kitchen oh, nice. um, for the, the lead picture on the show, along with a picture of you. Okay. Um, but because it's it is so rare to have a, an early photograph of a White House kitchen. Yes. So I, it's a it's a dark photo, but I, it's so wonderful to see that. Right. And, and, so I love the fact that here you have an African American woman in the cen- center of the kitchen, which I think is a great metaphor for the face of White House cooking. Because until the modern period, the face of White House cooking was pretty much an African American woman. Um, it wasn't until we get to the Roosevelt uh, Theodore Roosevelt administration that you start to have kind of white, uh, foreign white women running the White House kitchen for a 20-year period. Mm. So we had a Swedish and Irish cook phase there. But for the most part, it was black women um, really dominated a lot of the White House cooking. And let me just say, the presidential kitchen has been multiracial from day one. But if you look at the majority of cooks, they were usually uh, African-American. Hmm. Interesting. And of course, who, you know, the first lady would get credit for. Right. For organizing the food and planning the menus, and you know, Which, we all knew she wasn't in there getting her hands, you know, filled with flour. But <laughs> exactly, and that you know, that was apropos of the time, right? right. In any context, and it was still, usually... I think, still you know, to a large degree. I mean, there's you know, who's calling the shots? You yeah. know, wait a minute. So if I came and cooked at your house, you take credit I, for I everything. W- I would say I gave him the menu, <laughs> right? <laughs> no, no, that's a little different. <laughs> um, so. Where was there? I mean, oh, I think of so many of the of the dishes that um, you have some great recipes in the book. I forgot to mention that there are some really incredible recipes in the book that are either adapted from or well, that's the other thing. We have very few records of recipes, right? Very few. Um, before um, before the 1950s, you only saw um, re- uh, recipes printed in books. If, if, so, if a, um, a White House staffer wrote a memoir. Like a woman named Mrs. Elizabeth Jaffrey, she has a lot of recipes in her book. Of course, there's the White House cookbook, but the provenance of that cookbook is under question. It's it's not clear that it actually was White House recipes that were used, but it was you know a, yeah. a huge yeah. seller. And then periodically, you find recipes printed in the newspaper. Um, but then in the 1950s, that's when you start to see menus get printed more regularly and saved, and then still more and more recipes come out. And I think presidents start to understand the power of food. Um, and and f- I think Franklin Roosevelt really used that to his advantage, and mm-hmm. so did Eisenhower. Eisenhower was, was probably the uh, president who loved to cook the most. Yeah, yeah, he was always grilling, right? Yeah, he, he was always a, out there in the barbecue. Right? Yeah, he put a grill on the top of the uh, uh, rooftop of the White House, so people <laughs> would be walking by on sixteenth on sixteen hundred Pennsylvania Avenue. They see smoke coming out of the White House. It's the president up there grilling. <laughs> so he was president and cook. Right? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, well, there are so many wonderful stories, and, and I want to talk more about researching the recipes when we come back after a short break, so stay tuned. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past, and I enjoy finding out about history in all of our foods. Bob's Red Mill an Oregon-based company producing stone ground flowers and cereals, and so much more, is filled with history. From its Roman-style, old-world stone-grinding mills to the interesting varieties of whole grains and seeds that they offer. For instance, Bob's Red Mill has grains and seeds such as amaranth, chia, quinoa, farro, teff, foods that go back thousands of years from around the globe. And they're not just ancient history. 
These super grains are becoming more popular in modern day recipes because cooks recognize the healthy qualities and are finding delicious ways to incorporate them in meals. Quinoa, for instance, is so versatile. I love using it as a salad or as a savory side dish. Bob's Red Mill encourages you to eat wisely. Look for their products in your local stores or check them out online at bobsredmill.com and explore their huge range of products and recipes. And use the code Taste of the Past for 25% off your order. We're back and I'm talking with Adrian Miller, whose uh, recent book is the, well, you know, I call it so many different things. I want to read the right title here. Exactly. Um, it is from the cover of the book, I will tell you. Okay. You could tell me. Too. I was going to say, I could help you out. The President's <laughs> Kitchen Cabinet. I, you know, because I've, I've called it so many different things to give it a fancy title for different shows. Okay. The President's Kitchen Cabinet, the story of African-Americans who have fed our first families from the Washingtons to the Obamas. And... We were talking during the break about some interesting stories and what to pick and choose because we're not going to give the whole book away. People have to read the book. But it is not just a running history of one chef, one cook after another, but the stories, the interesting stories that that took place during different administrations. And you brought up the interesting stories that occurred during the civil rights movements. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that and who was who was there and who was cooking and who... Who were they listening to? Right. So a lot of times these cooks were um, civil rights advocates, um, maybe reluctantly, but uh, Zephyr Wright is probably the most notable example. So she is the longtime cook for the Johnsons. She starts cooking for them uh, in the 1940s, and um, she moves with the family to Washington. And at that time, the family would drive back from their ranch in central Texas to Washington. They'd drive back and forth. And on the initial early trips, Zephyr Wright would ride along with them, but she suffered so many indignities. You know, she wasn't allowed to go to the bathroom with the mm-hmm. family, wasn't allowed to eat with them, that she refused to make the trip. So she would live in Washington year-round. So fast forward, when Johnson becomes president, he actually uses her Jim Crow experiences to lobby for the 1964 Civil, Civil Rights, Rights Act. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, after the bill is passed, you know, the presidents, they sign these bills with tons of pens. He presents her with one of the pins and says, you deserve this as much as anyone. Wow. And a lot of times, if civil rights advocates could not get the ear of the president, they would go to the cook and just ask, hey, could you mention this while you're you know, making yeah. dinner for him? You're yeah. giving him his bowl of soup, say. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so-and-so said. Yeah. Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, we know that Frederick Douglass was, uh, and um, uh, a couple of the people were... You got in and got the the president's ears, but you know yeah. that was the, that was difficult. And difficult sometimes times. at great cost. Uh, the most infamous dinner, if you want to say it this way, was when Booker T. Washington had a meal at the White House, and it's hmm. the circumstances of that meal are are you know are, are debated. But uh, he ends up having a meal with Theodore Roosevelt, and the nation was scandalized, especially hmm. the South, and people editorialized about it. There were speeches in Congress: "How dare you entertain a black man." in the White House. Uh, and, you know, that's how hectic it got uh, yeah. back then. So, uh, But then, you know, there are other times when you have black staffers and cooks and others feeling like they were defending the president um, because 
of course, in many situations, presidents weren't doing enough. And so they had to tell you know, African-Americans, well, you know, he's doing what he can, given the circumstances, you know, that kind of thing. Right. So it was it was a really interesting dynamic. Wow. Uh, you know the power of the power of the the kitchen, the power mm-hmm. of who's making the food, mm-hmm. and interesting even in, in the semantics. Um, you mentioned before they wouldn't have a name; they'd be called a colored cook or a Negro cook, or, but always cook, never a chef. Right, just a cook. In the, that happened for a long time, up until recently, didn't it? Not? Correct, and I think that a lot of that has to do with um, chef became a classic uh, classification in the labor system. I guess in the 1970s because of some lobbying by chef organizations. Mm-hmm. So if you know, you cook in a restaurant if you run a restaurant, right? You're, yeah, then you're a chef, right? right? So uh, you know, I think it's an artificial distinction. Yeah. But other people would say it has much more meaning, but that I think that has to, a lot to do with it. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, the um, some of the stories that are there, well, they're hilarious stories too, and there have been other accounts of, for instance, um, FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, and he had a couple of favorite cooks, but they weren't the White House. We know (laughs) how, from stories of Eleanor Roosevelt, how horrible the food was during his administration, but he had he had some little sneaky side cook mistresses, if you will. Yeah. So uh, one I love is Daisy Bonner. So Daisy Bonner is a cook in Warm Springs, Georgia, and uh, Franklin Roosevelt would go there weeks at a time to get treatments for his polio. So to ingratiate themselves with the president, a local wealthy white family would lend their black cook to the president weeks at a time, and that was Daisy Bonner. So she got him hooked on all kinds of Southern food. Country Captain, are you familiar with that? Mm, it's a chicken yeah. curry dish. But you can talk about it. I mean, that's, that, you know. Yeah. You don't have a recipe for that in the book, though, do you? I don't, because no. I couldn't find one ascribed to her. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so the one I use is uh, the Edna Lewis one in The Gift of Southern right. Cooking. Uh, but I couldn't find her. her. That was really good. Let me just put it that way. Um, it's like a chicken curry, basically. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. not, I mean, that's pretty basic, bringing it down to basic, but that's, right. yeah. Um, and then other Southern favorites, Brunswick stew, a, a chicken vegetable stew. Um, but the thing he was really hooked on were pig's feet. FDR huh. loved pig's feet. And the way she would make them is she would broil them, split them, and butter them. And um, a little butter with my pig fat, yes, yeah. right. <laughs> and uh, he actually loved them so much that he served them to Winston Churchill in the White House. <laughs> and we know this because one of the African American butlers wrote about it in his memoir, a guy named Alonzo Fields. And uh, let's just say that uh, Churchill was not feeling pig's feet. He thought hmm. they were slimy, hmm. had an interesting <laughs> texture. Yeah, it was a, an American delicacy you just had to get into. Well, actually, it's French too. Yeah, yeah. But, uh-huh. um, so Alon- you, you mentioned Alonzo's name. There were so many other people working in the in the White House, well, in, in ancillary positions. I mean, the stewards, the the butlers, the servers. I mean, it was you know there was a lot of lot going on there. Yeah, and um, you know a lot of people know about the movie The Butler that came right. out in 2012. Great film. Uh, one of the things that I wish they had shown more was the teamwork aspect between the butlers and the kitchen. Um, because they're all trying to make the president and the first family feel happy and comfortable and, and well-fed. And so service was very, uh, important to them. So, but there was a huge teamwork aspect, you know, um, whenever the first family needed anything, they wanted to be, be sure that they could meet that need. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because as I mentioned before, it wouldn't necessarily be food that this cook, if this were a trained cook, in fact, at the time, would have served or cooked on his, on her own, primarily her, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the requests of the first family, what they wanted to be served, right? 
Oh, it was it was more collaborative than that actually. Yeah. Uh, so it just and it, a lot of it depended on what the first lady wanted. So typically, the first lady took charge of all the domestic operations and the food. And if it was a longtime personal cook, you know, they probably didn't meddle too much because they knew that cook knew what the first family wanted. Um, and we had a lot of Southern cooks, right? So a lot of times there were Southern, there was Southern food being served in the residence, mm-hmm. not necessarily for the, you know, fancy guest meals. Um, but you, there would become, there would come a time when then the first lady would work with the executive chef to plan menus. And sometimes the chef would propose a menu and the first lady would either just sign off on it or make changes. Right. So yeah, it just depended on the administration, but mm-hmm. it could be very collaborative. But as much as everything a president does today becomes political fodder, um, so it was in, well, particularly LBJ's term, there was that whole, that great story about the the chili. Oh, yeah, it's one of my favorites. And Zephyr, right, Uh cooking, you can share that with us. So um, for all the Texans listening, you know that the distinctive thing about Texas chili is it has no beans. It's beanless. So the White House released a recipe for Perdinalis River chili. That's the river that runs alongside the uh, ranch in um, central Texas, the LBJ Ranch. And um, the nation was scandalized. And they wanted to be reassured that their president liked beans. So the White House goes into spin control. And in my book, I actually have the transcript of a recorded conversation where the Juanita Roberts, the social secretary, is talking to Zephyr Wright about all the beans that the president likes and how he likes them. <laughs> um, Lady Bird Johnson said that that recipe card was the second most requested document from the federal government in 1964. The, only the thing, one for the chili or yeah, without the chili, beans? The, the chili without <laughs> beans. The only thing that was asked about more was the um, newly formed children and uh, women and children nutrition program. Mm. So that, that recipe got him in some hot water. Yeah. yeah. Well, you are no stranger to um, political um, action groups like that, too. In fact, when you were um, uh, an assistant to Bill Clinton, um, you worked for the America First um, uh, yeah, Initiative for One initiative America. Initiative for One America, right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Tell us about that. What was that? So that was an outgrowth of President Clinton's initiative on race, which was launched in 1998, chaired by the late uh, John Hope Franklin. And uh, the idea behind the initiative on race was, and this is going to sound crazy, if we just talked to one another and listened, we might realize that we have a lot more in common. <laughs> and so that did its work. I know, crazy, right? Yeah, right. Novel, it, novel idea. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so that did its work for about a year and a half. And after that ended, John Hope Franklin and the others running that said, Mr. President, you need to continue this on an ongoing basis. So that, become the, the, that became the initiative for One America. And the way I got involved is a law school classmate of mine from Georgetown Law School recommended, oh, asked me if I had friends back in Denver who might be interested in working for that, or I'm sorry, in D.C., I was in Denver at the time, if I had friends who would be interested in working that. And so I did the same thing that Dick Cheney did when George W. Bush asked him to find a vice president. I was the head of the search committee. Only my name went on the list. So I went and worked <laughs> yeah, well, there. Hey, listen, you know, there are times when you get to pull the strings. Right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> Good so, for you. Yeah, that was great. So it was about racial, uh, racial religious, and ethnic reconciliation. Hmm. Interesting. It was an interesting time. So the whole food, getting into the whole food writing, I mean, obviously you started, you, I don't know, obviously, but you started out with your first book on on writing about the history of soul food or what is soul food really and and exploring that. Yeah. How did you decide to to jump into food? So the short answer is unemployment. Oh, well. (laughs) Okay. So um, when I ended my stint in the Clinton White House, what happens in a change of administration is that as a a political appointee, 
you have to write out your letter of resignation and submit it to the incoming president. Shockingly, George W. Bush accepted mine. <laughs> so I was out of a job. And I started watching way too much daytime television. So I said, you know, I need to read something. So I went to the bookstore and I'm browsing the shelves and I see John Edgerton's Southern Food at Home on the Road in History. And early in that book, he wrote that the tribute to African-American achievement in cookery has yet to be written. So I thought that was interesting. The book was about 10 years old at that time. So I figured somebody had written it in the interim. So I reached out to him by email. He responded and said, you know, nobody's really taken on the full story. Um, pieces, people have done pieces of right. it. Right, there, were, but, there but, were some. Yeah. Yeah. So for whatever reason, with the only qualifications I had was eating a lot of soul food and <laughs> cooking it some. I decided to dive in, and that started the journey to write the book. Well, and you were on the board of Southern Foodways for a while as well, right? I was, and that helped. Speaking of John Edgerton. Yeah, that helped immensely because I got to meet John Edgerton, uh-huh. got to get to know him, John T. Edge, um, and other Jessica Harris, uh, Tony Tipton Martin, some uh, just other uh, luminaries in the field. And I learned a lot about Southern Food. All of whom who have been on the show, I have to tell you. Ah, great. <laughs> so. Uh, so I got to know a lot about uh, Southern Food from going to the symposium, the annual symposium, right. reading sources and things. So that was a huge help. Otherwise, I think I would have made a lot more errors in my book. Um, I probably would have said platitudes and stuff that people, right. had, you know. And I think that's that was a problem with um, a few of the, the smaller books that came before you, is mm-hmm. that they weren't really... Researched. Well, it's difficult. It was. It's a difficult topic to yeah. You know, to find to research. Yeah. And again, if I didn't have the uh, internet and the word searchable, digitized newspaper articles from the 1800s and stuff, it would have been a very different book. Yeah, it's made all our, those of us in in research made our lives so much easier. Well, I'm glad so, I could help. Yeah. I'm here for you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, the internet. It's 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 wonderful. Yeah. Um, so what's next for you? So my next book is going to be on the history of African-American barbecue culture um, because I've just consumed so much food media that talks about barbecue and they don't mention African-Americans, which is just crazy because yeah. if you know anything about the American barbecue story, African-Americans are central to it, not on the periphery. Well, be sure to pick up Zora Neale Hurston's book. On well, which that. one? Well, then when she wrote for the WPA, the... Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For the... Okay. Uh, the America Eats mm-hmm. project mm-hmm. and goes down to Florida to discover Florida food. Right, I right. That, I was going to think that was it called Florida food. Okay. Yeah, and uh, that's that's a great one to yeah. to look at. Yeah. So that's the next thing, and then after that, I, I hope to do a um, book on African American street vendors because they were the food trucks of the 1800s uh-huh. and uh, did a lot to shape the food scenes in a lot of cities that we know and love. New Orleans, Philadelphia, Savannah, Charleston. Oh, maybe that one should come first. Right? New York. <laughs> yeah. Well, barbecue is my first love. I so. know barbecue is, and you need barbecue judge. Of course, yeah, it's yeah. your first love. Yeah. Um, but I'm just thinking, there's so much barbecue out there, you know. But street vendors, yeah. So mm-hmm. you know, particular niche, you know. With, I think that that's wonderful idea. And check oh, this out. I actually have the sheet music and the words for some of their street cries. Wow. Where uh-huh. were those kept? In newspapers. Huh. They would actually print the bars, the musical bars and everything. So you can, you know, I'm not a great singer, but... And then you would identify, so you would identify that truck and you mm-hmm. would know where he was, yeah. you know, located. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That, uh, that is, I, I can't wait for that one. That, that's going to be cool. Yeah. That's going to have to be a movie. I think so. Are you <laughs> yeah. a singer? No. I was going to say, I can sign you to contract. No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> that would be treacherous. But yeah, just think if I could get Beyonce and others to... Yeah. yeah. And then have a little food and entertainment. And I can see a whole production on that one. Well, Adrian, it, it's a pleasure to hear you talk about these, this research in, in the book um, firsthand because it's a wonderful book and there's been so much 
wonderful press, wonderful things written about it. Thank and, you. And stories that we need to hear. And now you have to write an addendum, right? With yeah, all the news stories. So. Yeah, yeah, with all the relatives coming out of the the woodwork saying, oh my God, I saw you mention my mother's name. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. My, and now would be a great, great grandmother. Yeah. yeah. And the coolest thing is that they said, I'm just so honored that you wrote well about my ancestor. So they, they were proud, you know. And some of them were saying, hey, you know, you got this wrong because I was relying on a lot of secondary sources because there's just not a lot of primary sources about people. So I do want to kind of round out the picture and say, okay, this is what really happened. Right. And stuff. So right. It's, it's cool to hear it. And a test for the listeners out there, because we don't really pay attention to a lot of these things. Quick, who's the current White House chef? You want me to answer that? You can answer it. I know it too, but you can answer it. All right. So her name is Christetta Comerford. She has actually been in the White House kitchen since the Clinton administration. She became the White House chef the second term of Georgia W. Bush. Uh, she's cooked all throughout the Obama years, and now she's currently cooking for. She's, is she she's Filipino. I yes, think? yeah, mm-hmm. Filipino. Yeah, chef, yeah, and a woman. It's yeah. funny how they there went in a rash of there were men, and then all of a sudden it was all women, mm-hmm. and then there were, you know, back to the, <laughs> to say the exalted head chef being a man. All right now we're back to a woman, which yeah. I'm very happy. And to interesting. Hear. So. Um, not only do we have Christetta Comerford as the White House executive chef, but Susan Morrison is the White House pastry chef. Ah. And I think uh, she's the first in the modern era, because in the 1800s, we had black women as the, the pastry chef. Yeah. But in the modern era, she, she's era, the first one. She, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Any one story you couldn't get, who you knew about but couldn't get as a final? Yeah. So I couldn't get stories of a lot of the recent alums of the White House kitchen. I reached out to them um, and all of the African-American ones I reached out to um, denied my request. And um, I think there's a lot going on there. Um, hmm. The first of all, they may just they just didn't know who I was and they didn't oh. know if I was out to get dirt. Uh, there is definitely a code of silence. Um, I would imagine. Yeah. yeah. But here's the thing. Um, I reached out to several white people who were former White House cooks and five out of the six. Not only did they talk to me, but, you know, they were very, uh, very helpful in identifying a lot of White House culture, uh, including Walter Scheib. Um, before his tragic death, he yeah. was answering a lot of questions for me. So it's very interesting. They've all sent, signed the same paperwork, yet some felt they had more liberty to talk about their experience. And I, I think, you know, for the, for the African-American cooks, there probably were more professional repercussions for them if they were to be seen as talking out of shop. Right, right. And I think that's real. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Very interesting note to, to end on. Well, I look forward to so much more coming from you. And if you are listening today on March 1st, 2018, because we have people listening at all different times on podcasts, and you're in the New York City area, Adrian Miller will be presenting to the Culinary Historians of New York. So check it out. Yeah, it's going to be a good time. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Adrian. Thank you. And thanks for listening. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on A Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please 
Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Ever wonder what kind of podcast Julia Child would have made? Probably would have been one where she introduced you to all of her latest discoveries and favorite people. And that's exactly the tradition we're following on Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. Join me, Todd Shulkin, your host, and the Foundation's Executive Director, as I bring you inside the Foundation's world to meet the bright lights of today's food universe, just as Julia used to do from her own famous kitchen. New episodes air on Heritage Radio Network, Wednesdays at noon Eastern. Listen in.